or perhaps the body is crying out for attention, so you go to the body. Perhaps there's some beautiful bird sounds which have caught your attention, so you're really listening. Perhaps it's just quiet. So you're sitting and breathing and allowing that silence to operate on you. Learning how to enter into silence, how to remain in it and to let it nourish us. When we see the impermanence of a worry or fear or loneliness or anything, we've learned that lesson of nature that we all know in a general and perhaps abstract sense. But here we see a particular instance of something that happens in life and we see the law of anicca or impermanence at work. As we do that, enough times, our relationship to whatever we're observing starts to change. We start to see that this world is a field or an ocean of arising and passing away. Moreover, when we don't attach to or identify with, in this case, the worry, We also learn that it's not a self. What do I mean by that? Let's start the other way around. If we identify with it, with the worry, we blow it up. We feed life into it. And it's very convincing that this is my worry happening to me. And then that spreads. The emotions come in. It affects the body, other thoughts about what is happening. Before you know it, you have a full-blown episode. When we say that the worry is not self. It's a slightly different way of talking about impermanence. We see that this energy is insubstantial when it arises. It's awfully convincing, powerful. The more we identify with it, the more powerful it is and seems. But if we're able to look carefully into it, we see it for what it is. We see its changing nature. And we see that it doesn't last. It comes and it goes and it's not you in that sense. Because it's followed by something else and then something else. And it turns out that our sense of being a self, of personal identity, is woven together, stitched together, 
by a succession of images and verbal conclusions and thoughts, notions, pictures, ways in which we turn ourselves into an object. We objectify ourselves. I'm this, I'm that. I used to be, I will be. And there are many practices that help us improve the story from an unhappy ending to a happy ending or from a nightmare to a happy dream. But all spiritual practice is to wake up from the dream altogether, including this spiritual practice. It's no different. A happy dream may be more enjoyable than a nightmare, but it's still a dream. And whether we call the waking up enlightenment or God or mystical union or original nature, true nature, the unborn, the unconditioned, it's a lot of language. Finally, it's nameless. So what we've been doing during this week slowly, carefully, gently, but also, I hope, decisively, helping to re-educate the mind. So that it learns how to be very stable and clear, calm, concentrated. We're giving it some training to do this. We're rendering the mind fit so it can do the kind of looking that I'm suggesting. Finally, what frees us is the art of observation self-observation, self-knowledge, self-knowing. Again, not as a sentimental idea, but something we can actually do from moment to moment. And so a moment when you're awake, perhaps even seeing how you grasp onto something, and as a result of suffering, push something away, struggle with it as a result of suffering, in that moment, it's the practice of liberation through non-clinging. The seeing, the clear seeing, unties that knot, or begins to do it. At first, in Vipassana practice, a lot of what we're viewing are clouds, to use that image. Big ones, small ones, nice ones, not so nice ones. Menacing ones, very substantial looking ones, flimsy ones. Some that hardly last, some that seem to be around for a while. As we see into them and see their changing nature, The letting go quite naturally happens. And more and more, we live 
in the blue sky, clear blue sky of the mind. That clear blue sky is always there. Everyone in this room was born with it. It was there before we were born. It will be there when we die, when this body dies. And so this particular path is one of looking into all the conditions that seem to make up the mind and the body, to watch them change and unfold, to learn to not get entangled so much. So the practice of liberation is something that happens right now. You don't have to wait for 10 years or 10 lifetimes. We have opportunities to see our enslavement in a given moment and also to liberate ourselves in that moment. Sometimes these moments of freeing ourselves can be extraordinarily dramatic. But please don't hanker after that, because that itself is another kind of bondage. Just take it a moment at a time. Keep your practice simple. Stick to the present moment. This will take you a long way. You don't need to know a lot. You don't need to have many, many techniques. You need to have a very basic understanding. You have to have some reliable and good techniques, methods. And then you just have to really do it. I just want to really say thank you um, to you. And I don't want to say it like I say it to someone who the door open and brings me coffee, which I say anyway. Part um, of what I've sat with since last night is a you know, profound awareness of loving as a human being and, um, you know, 
a sense of how hard you've worked to really be present to everybody almost every moment. And um, it's scary to say that because in a way I don't know what it has to do with practice. Um, but then again, it might be the scariest thing in my life to say and probably is the most important for that reason. Um, so I just, you know, just want to say that to you. Um, Thank you, but I don't experience it. Um, it is hard work, but it's not the being, the being awake is, um, after a while, it's how I live. And it's not something so special. Well. Because it's something, if it were, then it would all be hopeless for all of us. It's something that can be learned if you practice it. If you want it badly enough, it'll start to happen. I can't handle compliments. It's, it's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm attached. I admit it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I need all the help I can get. Thank you. Yeah. Please. Karma. Please be careful, because what, what typically happens is we grasp after money, these microphones, money, power, sex, fame, and we find out they're a little bit empty. I don't mean Buddhist empty, just empty. <laughs> so then we find this, and this can become just as much a kind of something we <laughs> hanker after in ways that if you could just take it why not have a practice for the rest of your life? Going away for a month is helpful. Three months, three years, ten years. All that's helpful. Sitting in caves, all the things that we read that people do. Okay. Um, but what that also does, it excites some ideal of somehow uh, what you could become that's better than who you are now. If only you had more time, you were younger, uh, had fewer children, had more money, something like that, then you could really do this incredible thing. Um, can you see through that if what I'm saying is true for you? I don't mean it as a, in such a negative way. It's only natural. There is something wonderful about any spiritual practice. But you don't have to, if you start comparing it like I got to it too late or this body needs some rest, uh, what is that about? See, there's some kind of striving there. There's something that you want to get. 
Yeah. Where does the limitation come from? Okay. So if you want to call it that, it's all right with me. Um, but the practice, see, how about this one? That all there ever is is now? Reflect on that. It's taken me a long way. It's, it's a simple idea, but I don't think you'll find the end of it. There's only now. Everything else is chasing after shadows. It's just now. So that take care of this now. And if because you're X number of years or you're tired or someone else has a certain illness, you need more rest, when the time comes to rest, you go to rest, go to sleep. You can only do what you can do. Otherwise, you're going to drive yourself crazy. The practice is not about driving ourselves crazy. We're already doing that. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's not so easy. We're finding a fine balance between uh, an aspiration, a yearning, something that's worth aspiring to, uh, and yet when it gets, goes over a certain limit, we can feel that there's grasping and uh, craving and it's suffering. So how to find that fine balance where we give what we can and the conditions can be the age of our body or health. Uh, in a way, you can always practice. When I was in Korea, there were th three of us, three Americans, and no one had come to a career yet, and so they didn't know what to do with us, and we didn't know what to do with them. We didn't speak the language, and the food uh, made us all sick, especially me. I was just day after day after day, just uh, dysentery. And uh, we were starting to get worried, and we were in the, the retreat began, and so we were doing the retreat. And we were working with a koan called, What Am I? And what you do is you ask that question, What Am I? Not always in words. You get that question going. And then after a while, you ask it without words, sort of a deep looking, What am I? Okay. And when you're healthy, you know, you can really fire that up. Okay. But here I was, I hadn't been able to hold food for almost two weeks. And so I practically crawled into my teacher's little room, and he saw how discouraged I was. And um, this sounds like a Jewish joke, but it isn't. It's it really happened. So I said, um, told, describe what it was. You know, I'm working with the koan, what am I? And I'm just uh, finding it impossible to do. And he said, look, when you have a lot of energy, it's what am I? What am I? When you're as sick as you are, it's what am I? What am I? So you do what you can. And some days you have a lot of energy, some days not, some days you're busy, some days not, some days you, you can put together and come to a retreat. At other times, the requirements of the world are such that um, there's no way to get to places like this. Um, can we learn to land on our feet all the time? In other words, no matter what the conditions are, uh, that's why what is being emphasized so much in this style of practice is that wherever you are, the perfect place to practice. It's not at Omega. It's not in India. It's not in Burma. It's wherever you are. The, the materials are your life as your life is expressing itself in that moment. So you can do what you can. And if uh, you're starting to set a uh, romantic, ideal, wonderful, noble goal, and then you're imagining this poor body that can do just so much to get to that goal, and who wouldn't feel exhausted? I mean, I got exhausted listening. <laughs> no insult meant it. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. It's about taking care of this moment, always. Supposing you get enlightened, whatever that might mean to you, 
then what? You still have to go to the bathroom, wash up, uh, eat, uh, sometimes the body hurts, and then you go and die anyway. <laughs> but you get better karma, you'll go to some better place. <laughs> um, in terms of karma, I'd rather not get into the doctrine because on a retreat it's not so wise to feed that quality of mind, the speculative uh, abstract mind. There is a place for it, but on retreat it's best to stay as close as we can to our experience. Um, when you take care of the present, you're taking care of past karma and you're taking care of the present and you're also taking care of future karma. For example, let's say I use the example of worrying. Okay, so maybe you're worrying because uh, that's from the past. If you watch the mind, you'll see that when the mind is in such bad shape, it's because of something that we did. Not necessarily criminal. Okay, something happened and you can see karma right now from moment to moment, sometimes. So when you observe that worrying, rather than either suppressing it or identifying with it, I, I tried to make that as clear as I could during the guided meditation, uh, you're taking the power out of that uh, past it's happening in the present. There's only the present. It isn't that, let's say you're worrying about something that you did 20 years ago. You feel badly about it. When you get punished by it, and you're karmically punished by it. Okay. The punishment's already happened because of the worrying. In that moment, you're already suffering. And so you take care of it at, through wisdom, through seeing into it and letting it down. So in that moment, the present is a much better present because you haven't either uh, drowned in it or uh, suppressed it, which is exhausting too. In taking care of the present moment, you're planting healthy seeds for the future. So that moments of mindfulness tend to contribute to a, a greater likelihood of future moments of mindfulness, future moments of clear seeing, future moments of, of insight. So that if you take care of the present, you're taking care of your karma. What's done is done. The future's not here yet, but you can tell a lot about your present. You can tell a lot about your past by looking at the present. After all, that's what got us here. But you can also tell a lot about the future by looking at the present, by seeing how you're behaving right now, what you're doing. That's as far as I would be comfortable going with the idea of karma. But. Oh, more love, Jesus. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's getting worse by the moment. <laughs>
Someone else thought I was Jack Rosenberg? No, we aren't. Oh. I don't know. But anyway, it's just like the universe sort of conspired to get me here, and I just, you know, I can criti- be critical of so many things in my life, and this is just one of them that I'm not. And Okay, but maybe Jack Rosenberg is even better. <laughs> Please. It's not so much. Yes, yeah. It's not so much your choosing is that it arises in consciousness. There it is. For example, you're sitting and breathing, and you can feel the breathing happening, and then suddenly there's a sharp pain in your lower back. Okay, did you have to decide, you know, to go right? Let's see. Should where? Oh, it's there. It's it's chosen you. Do you see what I mean? Just sit in a state of receptivity and let life come to you. It's a slightly different attitude. Do you see what I'm getting at? I don't know. That's up to you. It certainly would be, if it's strong, it might be a, a useful way to practice. Uh, at the beginning, there will be an element of will. That's, I think that was to your, part of your question, Bob. Uh, until you, uh, see, it's, we're learning the art of surrender. And that doesn't come so easily. We want to be in control. And so that can't be forced. So that's what I meant by simulating it. We're approximating it. And so there'll be pain and then maybe a slight hesitation and then a decision to go to that pain. It's already there. Okay? So there will be some doing in it. And sometimes there is an element of choice. That is, you have a choice. You can stop and examine a particular object, like what you just described. For example, many of you, a number of you have told me about this, and I have a hunch it's probably true for all of you or for a lot of us, the body is going to be a place where you'll be spending a lot of time. And that's fine, because the body, bodily sensations are much more accessible at this point than some of these moods. They'll just take you away, and you're not able to practice with them yet. It's an individual thing. I'm speaking in general. If you can practice with fear and loneliness, of course. But if not, they, they turn up in the body as well. If you have anger, you, get, you feel it in the, in the body. If you have fear, you'll feel it someplace in the body. And that's much more accessible. So that you're there. Now you may uh, wind up spending the entire sitting uh, m- being with those sensations in your back. That's fine. But you could also decide not to do that and to be with other things. The key thing that's happening is not so much the objects, is that you are practicing being attentive. Independent of what the objects are, you're getting, you're strengthening this capacity to be attentive. Attentive. That's what makes the difference. As attention gets stronger, steadier, more natural. Do you see what I'm getting at? So I'll leave that up to you. Some of it, for example, if it's so strong and constant during a sitting, 
if you don't be, if you aren't with it, if you start flitting around, it's probably going to keep grabbing you back anyway. But let's say you're with it and with it and finally you've had enough. Okay, then go to the breath. Take, you know, it's okay. Then take, uh, breathe in, breathe out, either finish up the sitting that way or, as we say, take a breather. It's literally true. So I don't want to, this isn't assembling a vacuum cleaner, these instructions. It's artful. You have to learn how to move into your own experience and to see what, I've just given you a few guidelines, you know, new people in a town, uh, events that you're familiar with, you see them arise and pass away, arise. Here's another one. Oh, I have to look more carefully at that. You'll see that that also arises and passes away. What's important to see, first you have to be able to be with all these events. As your ability to do that improves, then you can begin to see that independent of the content, if we, for example, if we had some way of, probably there is a way now, monitoring everything that went on in our minds during this last sitting, the content would be staggeringly different for all of us. Okay? But the process is identical. No matter what it was that was on your mind or my mind, it arose, it passed away. And it's seeing that, now there's a, t a turning point in practice. To begin with, we all are much more interested in content than in process. It's only natural, because we're very concerned about our story. You know, I used to be, I am, I will be. If I do this practice, then I will be fantastic sometime in the future. I used to be an awful person. Now I'm, a, now I'm not as awful, because I've been practicing. And all that. So, but after a while, you get tired of uh, your story. How many times can you see Gone with the Wind? For me, it was four times. I walked out the fifth time. Finally, I didn't want to hear what Scarlet or Rhett or any of them had to say. Okay. So there comes a point where, uh, especially as the mind starts becoming very, very calm, you're not as interested in your story as, isn't that interesting that no matter what's there, it doesn't last. It's gone, gone. And you start uh, more and more being able to turn to the process aspect of reality, seeing that everything, the nature, of all form formations, anything that comes into a form, subtle or, or gross, it, or it, it must pass. And that it lacks substantiality. The substantiality that it seems to have is given to it by us through um, imbuing it with energy by identifying with it, making it, this is me, my worrying, my fear, I'm worrying, poor me. So it's always about our story or our ego, whatever language you like. Like what kind of question? Uh, if it's too personal, give me a... Um, well, like you said, who am I? Mm -hmm. um, what's, what's motoring this whole process? Because that's something that I really struggle Yes, I understand. Um, what's the nature of the silence? Yes. And then there's nothing, so I should go to the wonder. I mean, it's not like somebody answered. Yeah. The truth is that the practice is who am I? Remember, they're just words. Who am I? They're just words. This looking, that's, gonna, that's taking us deeper and deeper into that which we think of as being me. 
And so the whole thing is about finding out who that I is. What does that mean? When, that, when we create a word, I, me, mine, those are just words. You, you look them up in the dictionary. They're pointing to something. Okay. Now, the use of those words are skillful methods that have been used, in, including in Buddhism. Who am I? What is this? And if those words help you, fine. This path is not so much using the words as the, the intensity builds up from the observation itself. And wonder is a wonderful quality for all this. At a certain point, uh, you're going to see you don't know what anything is, really. Uh, it's very humbling, especially some of us who have uh, read a lot of books and have certificates to prove it. Uh, when you begin to understand, and it, uh, you may find that you're a mystic, but that's another label, too. Um, when you start getting into silence big time, um, thinking any kind of thought, including what is this, the nature of this silence, that crushes the silence, doesn't it? Yes. And yet, uh, it's imperative that we learn what silence is and enter into it. Do you know, um, I had lunch with the rabbi who's teaching here today, and we were talking a little bit about silence, and he said that there's an old Hebrew scripture, or his wife said it, that says, silence is the blood of God. I think the Buddha would agree, even though there's no God in Buddha, Buddhism. It's just words. So um, now I'll tell you what you can do. Now and then if, you're feeling, if a question comes up, there's no law to not say, what is this? You know, or, who am I? But it's, the practice wouldn't be repeating that over and over. Then it's more like a mantra. Okay. But from time to time, if the words kind of give you some energy and increase the thrust of your seeing, sometimes I'll do it. I spent a number of years practicing, five years practicing, what am I? And I don't use that so much anymore, but now and then when my mind is dull and sleepy, yes, me too, even Mr. Wonderful gets sleepy. <laughs> okay. I'll ask, who am I, because it's a more active thing, or what is this? And just by doing something a little more active, has a bit of doing in it, it sometimes will bring more energy. But I don't keep doing it over and over, and then I'm back to just the looking. Uh, it's the seeing that will free us. That's the assumption of this path. Some of you I know have seen, if you've practiced for a while, you've seen the potential in it already. If you're very new, I think you're going to have to be patient and have faith. But it's not, you shouldn't depend on faith forever because some fruit should be coming out of this. Yes, please. Sometimes.
in the light of a, when the mind is more calm and meditative, you can take up anything for reflection, and you can have uh, you can go more deeply into it. It's actually a method in and of itself. Uh, you can reflect there almost any. It's unlimited what you can do. So what you're saying is a useful thing for a human being to do from time to time. Yes, but if that's what you're spending the bulk of your time doing here on this retreat then it, you're not going to be learning the strength of this particular method. This method is not all of the path, but it's the heart of it. Uh, the degree to which the mind can become calm and steady will actually enable you uh, to go deeper into what you reflect on. But reflection is, is, is something that is used. For example, um, the reflection is only now. If you have no meditation experience and the person, you, you give it to someone, they may be extremely brilliant, and they'll basically intellectualize about it. Okay, Kahn said, and Hume said, and Wittgenstein said. Uh, if you come to that and let it soak in a concentrated mind, uh, the deeper implications of that come up. If you take up, for example, there are death awareness meditations that we, we use. One is, um, death is certain. Just a simple thought. Death is certain. It's what you could call a true fact. Okay. Um, you take it up and you repeat it a few times, and then it's not so much the words, but especially if you have some samadhi, some samadhi power that comes out of the practice. You take those words up, and it takes you deeper into the feeling of what that evokes in you. The words got you there. Uh, and so, uh, let's say, understanding some experience with your parents sometimes it may be very helpful to take it up and to examine it uh, with a meditative mind, sure. But do, do you see what a, it's a useful thing to do? And, yeah, okay. Yes, it's okay. I, I'm not uh, the Ministry of Thought Control. <laughs> okay, so so what did you learn something, right? You just said that, yeah. Okay, and it helped you in what way? If it's too personal, just give me the conclusion. Okay. What? Okay. I, I think I, I think I can think of a way of relating to what you're saying. Some of the problem comes from the use of the word insight, which is a perfectly good English word. And when we brought this teaching here, a number of us started using the word insight instead of vipassana because it was so exotic, we thought it was, relative to what was going on, that the last thing with Vipassana, you know, so we said insight. 
and people felt more calm with that word, you know, more relaxed. The problem with it is that everyone thinks they know what it means because it's a perfectly good English word. So there are insights that come out of meditation at many levels. And who's to say that that, that is valuable? There are some of the things you learn in the practice that are identical with what you learn in psychotherapy. I don't see how they're any different. We're not banishing that. It comes, you know, suddenly you understand something about a parent or you understand something about your childhood and you're uh, fine. There are other insights which have to do with the nature of all formations, the nature of life itself. I don't want to say that's more important than you uh, clarifying your personal existence. I think both are needed. To live in this world, you do have to clarify your relationships, you know, to your parents, to your children, and so forth. Um, and yet, there's something else, there's another angle of learning that this insight is about. It's seeing that everything arises and passes away. Uh, it's fundamental, basic, and it leads to something called ultimate truth. Okay. So that psychotherapeutic type, I, I shouldn't use the word psychotherapeutic, because people have learned about themselves forever, probably. You know, you just learn about yourself, and psychotherapy formalize that and develop methods, Freud and so forth, which have been extremely helpful to people. Okay. This is more of the same. So that uh, what I meant earlier, let's say certain things that we learn can turn our life from a nightmare into a happy ending dream, but it's still a dream. The, the goal of insight practice, of Zen, of Tibetan Buddhism, of Vedanta, of, you know, of practices like that, is to wake up from the dream altogether. Okay? They're not mutually exclusive. You have to live in a world with your parents, and it would be helpful if you can clarify it. But sometimes, seeing the impermanence of everything helps you even more than the literal content of understanding. But I can't give you a, a, a rigid formula for that. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. You see, if the mind is all cluttered up with unfinished business, it's not going to be interested in process. That's what I meant. I'm not interested that everything arises and passes away. I'm interested that my boss is a son of a... and I hate him. Okay, so you've got to, in some ways, come to terms with that. And if there's a lot of that, then you still could benefit from this method. And as it ripens, more that's what I meant, at a certain point, gone with the wind isn't so interesting. Yeah. Good. Please. Can't the Omega catalog rules reference two books that you were to read for this workshop? You made no reference to that. Can we deal with everything having to do with that kind of stuff tomorrow, if you don't mind? Why? Is the question a simple one? Mm -hmm. uh, why were we asked to read something that wasn't a yours? Because um, something that to this point has not been yours. Okay. One reason is I'm not Jack Rosenberg, who I understand has written some books. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm writing a book, and there are a, little, a lot of little articles and interviews with me. If you want them, call my mother. I'll give you her number. <laughs> okay. Or you? Okay. Um, I just followed orders. When they invited me to come here, they said, could you mention two books? This was sort of for people to read before they come here. Maybe like prepare the ground, 
to give. So did you read any of them? Yes. Did it help you make up your mind to come here? Uh, I read it in my mind up before. Mm-hmm. Joseph and Sharon? Right. Uh, at least that's what they told me, so I just gave them, I don't even remember the names of the books I suggested. Uh, so it was to kind of familiarize you a little bit with what this is. What? Yeah. No, no, they're okay. They're, what? There, there are a lot of good books. I, I, I'm sure I picked two good ones out of many. That's all. I'm not saying I just threw any junk at you. What? Uh, but not talking them on the retreat is um, to not stimulate thinking kind of things. It's more to keep everything practice, practice, practice. Have you noticed how monomaniacal? Uh, that's how a retreat, if we had more time to go, the momentum picks up. And in guiding a retreat, uh, then the mind will sometimes really desperately want some distraction. And so leading it, you have to work skillfully and carefully with that. And Yes, please. Uh, I don't know whether it's a function of opening up the meditation or the state or, uh, or whatever, but I, I can appreciate how much you need to get back to the breath, mm-hmm. which is really where I am, I mean, at the beginning. Um, but it sort of it, it leads me to a question that you really might have answered in the last few questions, but I just want to bounce it off you. I, I work in the mental health field, so... Mm-hmm. Um, I get a little snagged on the idea of what the difference, I think I have an intuitive sense of the difference between psychologizing and getting to the root of things. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah. You know, that's something that you refer to as, as something that we're really looking for in a sense, or that it comes up through the practice, getting to the root of something. Okay, uh, let me take your first part about um, the breath, that you decided to get back to the breath. So it's not kindergarten. It's not um, something, baby stuff, and then you get on to really vipassana, the real thing. You know, a real person just practices vipassana. That's just kid stuff. It's not so. Uh, there are two um, practices which both have their own value. And to illustrate that, after the Buddha attained enlightenment, now let's attribute the most we can, let's assume he's a fully enlightened being, it'd be pretty hard for him to be, uh, he had to be pretty good to leave a teaching behind that has survived 2,500 years and is still vital. It's a very clear teaching. You know, it's a lot, of, a lot of words, and a lot of what I'm saying, it's right there. You can read it, okay? And there's a living tradition, more important in many ways, not more, but as important, to keep it going. Okay, so someone once asked him, uh, he uh, took off for a month, and they didn't know where he was. And he came back, and they said, where have you been? And he said, I just did my own personal retreat. And they said, oh, you, uh, you did a retreat. Oh, well, what did you do on your retreat? And he said, I did Anapanasati. That's what we're, that's what we're doing, mindfulness of the breath. And they said, but you're enlightened. Why do you need to do Anapanasati? And he said, it's just a wonderful way to live. You know, uh, he just got into probably extraordinary states of deep peace and calm. 
and just enjoyed being there. But he wasn't trapped there. He could also come out of it and then uh, use his wisdom eye as well. So uh, just to make it clear, uh, mindfulness of breathing is not baby stuff. And feel free to use it a lot, even use it for the rest of the retreat entirely if you wish to. I had to say other things to put that in to show you that there's more, there are other things that are available for you to do. Um, as that calms down, as your mind calms down by doing the mindfulness of breathing, you're going to see quite naturally that the mind stuff, all that stuff that's there, is still going to be there, only now you're going to be much more able, it won't be like a always anyway, like a riding a bronco, and there'll be some very, very useful seeing and learning and letting go that, that happens. And so each of us has to be honest with ourselves and to know what you need in this moment. If the mind is as wild as that, I would suggest go back to the breath. If the mind is really nice, calm and, and calm and clear, be a little bit bold. Don't be afraid. Jump in and just sit there and be aware of whatever's turning up. Okay, the second one with psycho, regarding therapy, I'm not quite as comfortable with because I'm not a therapist. Well, it's more the term psychologizing. Yes. Yes. That's right. Okay, that would, it would be, um, okay, let's say um, you're doing the second practice, choiceless awareness, but the mind is, really doesn't have very much stability, and stuff is happening, and instead of being aware of what's happening, all I meant to say is this, instead of being aware of what's happening, what the mind is doing, oh yeah, there's a reason this is that way is because I know this well, boy, it's when I was a child, my mommy dropped me on the floor, and you know, I, uh, and now I still resent it. And plausible reasons for why something's there, uh, causes that go back in history, uh, all kinds of useful, interesting speculations, brilliant intellectual explanations. Wow, this is what Kierkegaard meant. Uh, all of them are evasions of intimate contact with what's happening. Okay, so in those moments the mind is just not quiet enough to just see. So it's doing... I, I don't, I'm not down on psychotherapy. Did that come across? Good, because quite frankly, living in Cambridge, uh, uh, first of all, I would not have survived because uh, everyone who comes to the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center is in therapy, has been in therapy, or will be in therapist, therapy. I would say about 75% are therapists, 50%. I have never been in therapy, not because I'm so mentally healthy, sorry, but uh, I haven't. I missed that one. I used putting something in my mouth instead to learn about myself. Okay. Um, The level of, of therapeutic intervention uh, is extremely helpful. Uh, many, uh, we're now learning how to, how to use both meditation and therapy in a very, very uh, good way. If you have a therapist who's sensitive to what meditation is, ideally who practices as well, uh, and if you have a meditation teacher who's not on a high horse about condescending, thinking that uh, I'm very spiritual and you're doing psychotherapy. It's really not a matter of superior or inferior. They do somewhat different things and often some people called 
uh, I hope I'm forgiven for this, but some of us who are called great teachers, great uh, meditation masters could use a little bit of psychotherapy, it seems to me, over the years, what I've seen. So I value both. In Cambridge now, we send many people to do psychotherapy either in addition, either stopping meditation, it's just not right for them right now, um, or to work in a kind of, uh, both of them in a very skillful way. And it seems to um, very often work out beautifully. But the psychotherapeutic approach is coming at it from a slightly different angle. Um, there's one therapist in Cambridge who has formulated this way. I don't totally agree with it, but it is helpful. What he says is, uh, before you can be a, no, a, a nobody, you've got to be a somebody. Okay, some of you have heard that. Probably every therapist has heard of it. Okay. Uh, meaning, when you hear all this talk about not-self and emptiness and all in Buddhist circles, uh, they're saying, that sounds great, but first you've got to be a somebody. In other words, the highest thing you could say about someone in Buddhist circles is that you're a nobody. <laughs> that, if I could honestly tell you that I am a complete nobody, uh, I, would, I would be very happy, but I have to admit I'm still a somebody. Okay. So there's some truth to that. Now, so that a, a lot of therapeutic work is helping the person gain some self-respect, ego strength, terms like this. Um, some traumas are so deep that to ask a person to just observe it the way we're doing here is just unrealistic. It has nothing to do with the person's intelligence or even their motivation. It can't be done. The pain is too deep. And the, the level of concentration is not developed yet. So that's a very necessary and worthwhile level to, under, to understand. Even those of us who haven't been trained, we do some of that intuitively. But I always feel a lot better if I can send someone to someone who's really trained there than me doing the best I can. I don't, I don't like that too well. Um, finally, uh, insight, the major insight is seeing that the ego will never be happy. There's, it's, in, it's constitutionally incapable of being happy. What? It's insatiable, thank you. Uh, and so it experiences humiliations all day long. When people don't look at us the right way, or they look at us the wrong way, or they don't look at us enough, or they look at us too much, or uh, they pay, don't pay us. There's so many ways in which the poor ego gets humiliated. And then sometimes we're successful but we don't hold it. There's always somebody smarter and prettier and younger and, you know, and uh, more enlightened. So, uh, but some activities are trying to strengthen that capacity of ego functioning. By the way, in med meditation is not trying to destroy the ego or kill the ego, as some people think. What would that be like? I mean, you'd be, how could you live? It's rather, you're not egotistical about your ego if you it's a strange way to put it, but that's the only way I know how to say it. You have ego strength, but you're not egocentric about having that strength. To be able to function, you know, to be competent, uh, to be able to hold a job, carry out a relationship, and so forth. Of course that's good. Okay. So that uh, this, you have to be a somebody before you can be a nobody, is bringing you to a place where there's a lot of fulfillment in life. Um, many of us who started who went to Asia for these teachings were, at least on paper, already successful. Uh, many people were successful financially. I know the lives of my colleagues and, and my own. 
or they had higher education, they had many degrees, they were teaching at wonderful universities, um, they had all the resources that America has to offer, which is considerable. And not to put that down, I, I don't personally. And yet there was something left over, something, uh, some uh, hole there that needed to be filled. So why is it that in the most opulent country in the world, uh, that's where the energy re uh, really went for spirituality? This is the most spiritual country on the planet right now, believe it or not. Go to Asia, it's dying out. They all want to go to MIT and Harvard. They're not interested in coming here. You start talking about Omega, Insight Meditation, they'll start looking around. How do you get into MIT? Do you have any influence there? Okay. And there's more energy for this, and that's why some of the Asian teachers more and more love teaching Westerners. Okay, but the, it's a different question. The question here is something that goes even beyond that kind of fulfillment. It's not anything new. It's an ancient quest. It's been around for as long as, I guess, we humans have been in all the great traditions and also outside of them. There have been. A, do you see what I'm getting at? But all I meant, I don't think it was, it was just that you're kind of chronic introspection. You're doing intelligent thinking, but it's not observation. Okay. Um, it's, it is past five. I'm willing to take one more uh, question if, if someone has it. Please. Yeah. Yeah, what I'd like to do tomorrow, uh, maybe we should uh, lay today to rest, not grasp onto it and hold and crave and all that, um, is we'll do some sitting, maybe some walking, I don't know. I'll have to figure, see what time we have. But I would like for us to talk more about how to bring the practice back into where you're going to daily life. Um, in line with that, one person, is the person who's leaving today here? There are more, there are two of you, three of you. Okay, you may not have noticed, but there's a little uh, piece of paper with a sign-up sheet on it. Um, what is your name again? I'm sorry. Madrina. Yes, Madrina uh, in New Jersey. Okay, now here's something that we have found to be very useful at IMS in Cambridge. Many people don't live near centers of this kind of stuff or near teachers. Uh, and it is helpful to have company to do this. So there is a growing network of, you know, all it takes is really even one person, or let's say two or three people, just set aside one evening a week and meet over someone's home uh, and just do some sitting or some sitting and walking, perhaps play a tape, have some tea, talk over the practice. It just helps keep things, al keep things alive. Uh, there is one such group already going on and has been going on for a while in New Jersey, Bob, but I don't know if you are near with that, that part of New Jersey, south. But here's, what I, I, here's all I'm trying to get at in general. If any of you feel that you're somewhat isolated uh, from these things and you're drawn to this, in a certain way it's a sampler, right? There's a big five-day sampler. So you can figure out, is this something you want to do more of? If you do and you feel that you're alone and that might be hard on you to practice, uh, maybe put up some sheets so that people can find out. Some of you may live closer to each other than you realize. And it's okay. <laughs> I, I don't think you're rude or anything like that.
Yes, you can do that. It probably they'll probably curse my name if you hear it because there's a growing number of people. Larry said that we can call you up, and, uh, but I think many people here come from around here, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and so forth. But if that appeals to you, there's one such note outside already. See if you're within range, and then it really does help to sit with people once in a while. It strengthens your practice. Yes. You know what we can do tomorrow? Well, you know, you can get it started now. What? Yeah, it's sort of the Manhattan, the, all the uh, P, uh, yogis from Manhattan can go to you. <laughs> We've got some New Jersey yogis and so forth. And, uh, anyone here live in Cambridge or the Boston area near? You do. Okay, we have a center, and there are also, people who live, let's say, 45, where do you live, for example? Gloucester. There may be, that's about an hour. Yes. And there may be other places, smaller groups of people who sit together who come to, to Cambridge, the Cambridge Center, but who meet. But anyway, it's helpful. It's what the Buddha called Sangha, or community. Uh, it's not trivial, it's helpful. You know, you have to learn how to sit alone and together. It's like life. You have to learn how to be alone and also how to be with people. Uh, there's a certain wonderful thing about meditating together, but if you can only meditate when you have a crowd, uh, just think how limited you are. Then again, there are some people who can only meditate alone. Uh, somehow there's something about people that they have to learn. It's really both, but especially at the beginning, having like-minded friends who are moving in the same direction can be of Im immense help. Could we have a few moments? Yes, okay, one. Pardon? meeting a fresh new day. And what better way to do that than to notice that we're breathing? each of us working at our own pace. Each sitting is different, each day is different. Some mornings or sittings we sit down and come to the breathing and within a short time we're very clear, calm, relaxed. And then we might at that point, open the field of attention, 
to whatever is there. And in other days, perhaps the whole sitting is spent on the exclusive attention to breathing. We don't have to make one superior to the other. It's what's appropriate. Some days are cold, you put on more clothing. When it gets hot, you take the clothing off. If the mind is scattered, restless, help it settle down. One very good way is simply to come to rest in the breathing. As I hope at least to some extent you've been learning this week. The breath is always there. You just have to notice it. And when we sit in a state of openness, whether you call it choiceless awareness or free attention or just sitting, many labels for it, one of the most important things that we have to learn is a certain attitude that for many of us is rather different from the attitude that influences us throughout the day, whether we know it or not. The kind of mind that we're growing into in the in free attention, choiceless awareness, is a mind that's free of contrivance free of calculation, scheming, plotting, bargaining, making deals. A mind that doesn't have an obsession with acquisition, of accumulating something, to store it up, to add to our resume, to our life story. to fulfill the ego, but rather it's more of exploration, an attitude of exploration, looking, listening, learning. What is this? What's happening here? Not really the words. And so some attitudes which are often thought of negatively in daily life are positive for us, like naive. Often, at least where I live, that's not so good to be naive. It means people will take advantage of you. You won't get the full value out of what is possible. Here, naive is good. Coming to each object that turns up, whether it's fear or just a, a less dramatic mood, a bodily condition, birds chirping. The naive in the sense of innocence, open, fresh. 
can we learn? How more and more to allow this quality of mind to permeate our life, to permeate the practice. At a certain point, the practice and the life become the same thing. Innocent, naive, Humility is another good one. It's not the cultivated humility of trying to be a good person or to not be so egotistical, which isn't humility anyway. It's more a genuine approach to consciousness where you leave behind all of your knowledge. Many of us know a lot. We know a lot about the human mind. Many of you are therapists. Probably all of us are fairly well or very well educated, and we've read lots about the mind and about people and human nature and so forth. It's not that that isn't useful, but in these moments of practice, it's very helpful if you can understand that that's all the past. That's all the accumulations, the thoughts, the memories of the past, which we call knowledge. For example, can you see the difference that it would be to approach something like fear or loneliness as if for the first time? Your fear, your loneliness, not someone else's or some general psychological inquiry into the nature of aggression. This is first-hand personal research which each of us must do for ourselves. That's also good science. Really good scientists have that ability to become childlike and fresh. Some of you have heard of beginner's mind. Or don't know mind. The don't know here is not the lack of information or ignorance. but it's at least temporarily suspending all of the theories, views, and knowledge that we have so that we can look with a clear, simple, direct mind at whatever is there, even a breath. More and more that's the direction the practice goes in. You can pick up your knowledge again and use it when it's appropriate, but we don't have to carry it around as a shield, as protection, which very often separates us from what it is we're attending to, because we already know what it is. So it's a different attitude here. I don't know. What is this? Hmm. Once you get the knack of it, the mind loves it. It's very rejuvenating. The mind doesn't have to grow old. 
So we sit in the midst of our experience when we do open attention, and what we see is what's there. We listen to what's there. And no matter what it is, we see it arise and pass away. Anicca, impermanence, change, transience, inconstance, words like that. Everything is becoming something else. If you look closely, you'll see it's microscopic. There are no things. It's all a flow of energy, process, including that which we think of as being me. When you hear terms like anatta, if you read Buddhist texts, or emptiness of self, it's not that you're meant to believe in that. I believe that there's no self. The Buddhists say there's no self. I agree with them. It's more to freshly inquire into what is this self that we've been taking for granted and living with and for, for all these years. So we bring that openness, that innocence, that naivete, that humility, and that, of course, is the question, who am I? Maybe even more precise, what am I? Maybe we're not a who at all. And as this becomes a little bit more natural for you, it's a great joy to just sit and watch the parade, watch the passing show. It's great fun. I can't say always, but a good deal of the time. Here, come, here comes pride. Here comes discouragement. Here comes whatever's next. We see them arise, we see them pass away. And more and more, you will see, not as an ideology, but as a truth, we see they're impermanent and that they lack selfhood. They don't have an enduring core. They're not as substantial as we think they are. It's the thinking that gives it some sense of substantiality. As you learn to do this, seeing the arising and passing away, of course the letting go becomes much more easy and natural. And we find ourselves on an interior journey into regions of the mind that are probably new, undiscovered territory. The world of silence. That word silence is inadequate. It sounds like it's just a break. But the silence I'm talking about is the source out of which everything comes and to which everything goes back. Moreover, it's not vacuous or blank. The silence I'm talking about is highly charged with life. It's just the most refined kind of life. And so in this practice, little by little, as we learn to let go of our attachment to all the names and forms that parade in front of us, we find ourselves in a, a new territory. and We have to learn how to live there, 
become comfortable, to absorb the strength and the love that comes in this silence. This energy is an extraordinary gift, silence is, and it has amazing power. But you can't grab at it. It's very shy. If you want it, if you try to capture it, it hides under a rock. If you surrender, and love it, it will come right out and meet you. So we learn to live in silence, to be comfortable, to overcome the fear of the unknown by examining the fear. That's very common for meditators. As we get close to the silence, we tighten up. Oh my goodness. We'd rather have our suffering, because it's familiar. It's like an old shoe that pinches. But we know it. I don't know what this silence is. And if fear comes up, if it should for you in your practice, practice with it, just as with anything else. And then finally, practice is bringing that silence, or what we develop when we rest in silence, into daily life. It's what we sometimes call silence in action. The mind is more fresh, more charged with energy, more loving, more intelligent, more discerning, more compassionate. Sounds like quite an advertisement that I'm giving, but I think you'll find that it's true. That's why we bother doing all this stuff, putting up with hurt backs and hurt knees and giving up certain kinds of pleasures to sit quietly. So each of us, at all times, we start where we are. Right now, at this moment, wherever you are is fine. I just very, very briefly sketched out something that's perhaps ahead of you. Perhaps by hearing it, when you come to the frontier of silence, you'll be a little bit more ready to let it into your life. Without fear, but rather seeing it as a, an extraordinary gift, blessing. And whatever our life is, however the, difficult, the difficulties of our life are, when we can drop into this silence to allow its strength to touch us, to feed us, to nourish us, it seems to be easier to not only live, but to live well. And all of this can begin with just a simple in and out breath. Breath is a kind of unassuming vehicle. It's very humble itself, easily overlooked. Many more colorful mind states. The breath, just in a very unassuming way, just doing its job day in and day out.
but it comes from an immaculate source. And if you let it, the breath will take you back to where it comes from. In a sense, in a retreat like this, you've already had more experience than usual because you've been given the challenge of adjusting whenever you leave the hall and silence and entering into the greater community of what's going on here at Omega uh, to find out what happens to the silence that you develop here, uh, how fragile is it, and so forth. Um, one attitude that I think would be helpful, I'll use the breath as a metaphor for it, because uh, I've seen this so many times in myself and in others, until you, when you do a fair number of retreats, eventually you learn the art of letting go of the retreat. Um, the analogy is of exhaling and inhaling. So uh, soon we're getting to the point where it's time to completely exhale the retreat. Just breathe it out fully, a nice, healthy, long, deep exhalation. Uh, the reason being, if you do that, then you can fully inhale what's next, your family, job, getting in the car, whatever is next for you. If you're clinging to the retreat, if you haven't had a full exhalation, then you're not going to have a full inhalation. So when you get home, you're going to be fragmented, half there and half uh, here. But that's a a model for living in general, uh, applying this practice in daily life. That is to do each thing in your day wholeheartedly and then when it's over to let it go and to move on to the next thing and to do that wholeheartedly and so forth. Um, let's start off with what might be a typical day for all of us. First of all, we wake up, right? And uh, you can bringing a bit of attention to what you wake up into, just the particular mood, uh, the state of the body, the uh, how the mind is, just how you're beginning the day. You're just, you don't need a special posture, just a few moments in bed, just seeing what you're starting with. Sometimes when you can acknowledge it, um, you can then meet it directly and behave appropriately in certain ways, head off certain problems or launch into the day in a very nice way. If you're, maybe we ought to not make assumptions. If you're drawn to this practice, um, then it would be good to develop a daily sitting practice. It's very, very helpful. It means if you can, it's useful to set aside a certain amount of time each day to do this practice. To begin with, you'll probably 
be squeezing it in around your already existing schedule. Uh, if the practice really develops for you, you'll probably start to uh, switch your priorities a bit so that you start altering your life a little to make sure that you have time to practice rather than trying to uh, sneak it in in between the cracks of other things. Because as you start to examine your life, and I would encourage you to do that, that's what mindful living is, uh, which is to start to take a fresh look as to how you actually live. Underline actually, capital letters, italicized with an exclamation point uh, because we have a lot of notions as to how we live images and conclusions and uh, some of which we've inherited from our parents and other people and ideals uh, but the practice of course is not about ideals it's about moment-to-moment -moment attention and then you begin to see how you actually live okay. so if it turns out that you are drawn to this practice then it's very helpful to start off the day, for example, with a sitting. You wash up and before eating, uh, you, you do some sitting. How long? I have no idea. You know, there are some traditions where, I don't know where they get the number, but let's say 20 minutes. I, okay. <laughs> One hour. 45 minutes is good, an hour is easy. Uh, I think it's, again, very much an individual matter. Uh, for one person, 20 minutes is just getting warmed up. For someone else, it's an eternity. And so what I would suggest is that you, here you've been a captive. You've had to sit as long as, as you know, I've decided when to ring the bell. But at home, uh, and, it, and in some ways it'll be more difficult because you won't have a professional bell keeper, bell time, whatever, <laughs> to do it. Um, one guideline that a fair number of people have found useful now, and I certainly found it useful, is to sit, set a schedule, assuming you have the time. Sometimes your life is such that you only have five minutes. Okay, sit for five minutes, one minute, one inhalation. And then you're so busy, so much to do. Uh, but they're even, I'm joking, but I'm not joking, because what you're doing is kind of, um, building into the mind your sense of the importance of this activity, the continuity of it, the fact that you do value it, and even if you can't do it, uh, just even symbolically to just uh, contribute to its strengthening, its development. Let's say you find that on the average 25 minutes is really good for you. Then perhaps sit for 30. Whereas Challenge yourself a little bit. Go, uh, that's how learning happens. So go a little bit beyond what you think is your capacity. That will change from day to day, of course. But let's say on the average it is. If you don't challenge yourself, it's very easy to fall into a kind of a, a plateau, just hum along. But if you, t if you challenge yourself too much, uh, the practice can become dreary and burdensome and uh, joyless and soon you won't be doing it. You know, you'll uh, be do doing something else during those moments. So find that, give yourself a, a bit of, an, of a, find your edge and give yourself a bit of a challenge. Five minutes more. Uh, if you overdo it, you'll probably find out that it's not so helpful. And let it grow naturally. Maybe 25 minutes becomes 30 minutes and then 30 becomes 40 minutes and who knows where that goes. Um, Regarding this practice, what I've seen over the years is 
I think meditation is a real gem for the human race. It's not a luxury item. But I don't mean insight meditation. I don't mean uh, narrowly vipassana or any other of uh, the many wonderful forms that exist. But some form of setting aside time of silence to be with yourself, exclusively to be with yourself. It's not narcissistic, pampering, self-indulgence, unless you're using it that way. It's not even a luxury, really. It's quite important to be able to uh, don't even use the word meditation if you like, but just to sit silently with yourself for a certain amount of time each day where the only job you have is to just be with yourself and to be in touch. Now, some of you may have done these five days. Many of you are really, really quite new to all this. And maybe you, um, you hated it or you found that um, it just doesn't feel right to you. Don't conclude that Meditation is, is not right for you. There are so many different styles. If this is not the right one, then shop. Then go to the mall and try out different ones. Until you find the one, you'll know when it's the right one. It really is it's not that complicated. And if it's, if it's been difficult, but you feel that it's the right path, that's fine. But if you somehow trust your, your intuition that it's just something off about it, he's a nice guy and all that, but you know, there's just something about it, it's just off, then, then try other paths, other teachers, because there are really a lot around in the whole East Coast and some of you from California. Um, if you have concluded that you do really, that you have found your path, that you really, at least for right now, and perhaps nothing is forever, but for right now you feel uh, this is a path with heart for you, that you really connect with it, then for goodness sake, stop shopping. What I've seen, I mean, I live in Cambridge, and one of the hardest things is because Cambridge is so rich. Sufi dancing, insight meditation, four kinds of Zen, 15 kinds of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, 18 million kinds of Raj Yoga, Vedanta, Kundalini Yoga, Power Yoga, uh, Powerless Yoga, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, it just goes on and on. And people's minds are like the bulletin boards in Cambridge. You know, it's just one workshop pasted on top of another, people coming, pulling off one shirt, putting their own workshop on top. <laughs> Photographs of smiling faces from all over the world, you know, like, who's smiling better, so I should go to, to that person. Uh, if you find what you want, try to understand that uh, you don't need a lot of teachings and a lot of paths and a lot of teachers. Uh, you need to have a basic understanding and then you have to do it. The ancients, it, this is an old problem among humans, but I think it's much worse now because we have such abundance in our country. Uh, they would say if you, want, if you want water, find a hole, the right hole, and then start really digging and then you'll come to water. But if you, as soon as you dig and say, well, I don't know, maybe I'll go over here, or maybe over there, you'll have a lot of holes but no water. So you're the one to know. If you think at least for the time being you found the path that's realistic for you, that feels right, then give it your best energy and don't waste time with all this uh, curiosity. Sorry. <laughs> I do have a lot of views and opinions on this one because I live in Cambridge. Maybe if you live in Iowa, it's not a problem. But in, uh, you know, and this is not so different from It's wonderful that something like Omega exists. And you also, I think, have to learn how to use it because otherwise it will use you. 
you know, just all these different things, and you're just going to be driven from one. Um, they'll probably never ask me back. <laughs> it's okay, you can tell them. Uh, one booth to the next. Okay. Uh, and I don't mean that you have to become fanatical about insight meditation if, it, if this is for you or Zen or whatever it is. And then drop yoga, drop macrobiotics, no more massages, no more acupuncture, acupressure, colon therapy. I'm not saying that. Uh, there are other things that can help along, but find out where headquarters is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.